0: No purchase necessary. we're prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about- Well hi everyone and welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host Lori LeBay and I'm thrilled that you can be with us today. We are going to have a great conversation about dementia and really how to live brilliantly alongside it. But before I introduce our guests I always like to mention our opening song Clearing Call. It's by the Mark Arneson Band and I'm so thankful that they let us use that And you can download that on any of your favorite music platforms. Also, if you're new to Alzheimer Speaks Radio, we're about sound information, not just sound bites. I know what it's like. My mom lived with dementia for 30 years, and that's why I started Alzheimer Speaks. In fact, we just rolled out our new website. So please go there. We have a ton of free resources for you to access along with all of our speaking and training and consulting and and branding that we do. So go to alzheimerspeaks.com and check that out. I also want to mention that the memory camp is open and that will be August 15th to the 18th and you can register by calling 715-479-8255. We are going to hear from the Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner, and uh, then we'll be right back with our guests.
2: I love the footbar walker, and let me tell you why. It is the option for my toolbox that I've been waiting for. Let's be honest, there are some clients who, despite our best rehab efforts, just aren't able to return to performing a sit-to-stand transfer on their own. Now I can offer my caregivers an easier, safer option that doesn't involve hoisting their loved one up from a sitting position. Adapt it.
1: Okay, so we are back and I can't wait to introduce you to our guests today. We are going to be talking about dignity for the deeply forgetful people. And our guests are Stephen G. Post and Reverend Dr. Jade Angelica, both have been with us before. um, And it's always a fun, fun, interesting conversation. So let me just uh, give you a little bit of background. And then I'm going to go ahead and pull them into the conversation. So Stephen J. Post is the founding director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care and Bioethics at Stony Brook University, the Renaissance School of Medicine, where he also serves as a professor of family, population, and preventative medicine. He is an elected member of the Medical and Scientific Advisory Board of Alzheimer's Disease International, and only one of three recipients of the Alzheimer's Association Distinguished Service Award. Reverend Dr. Jade Angelica is a Unitarian Universal Community Minister and a spiritual director, and she offers hope and inspiration to the Alzheimer's community through her writings and workshop. She even did a play. Um, Jade's most rewarding uh, ministry has been caring for her mother, though, Jean, who died from Alzheimer's in 2011. Well, I just want to welcome you both to the show. I'm so excited to have you back. Um, you're both brilliant in mind, body, and spirit. And you offer so much to not just the community of, of dementia, but the world as a whole, you know, just the way you guys live your life and your philosophy. So I can't wait to be able to share more of your, your work uh, today with our audience. So uh, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today.
3: It's an honor. It's a delight.
1: And Jade, I'm thrilled to have you back as well. Um, I think last time we did your play when you were, when you were on the show. So um, as usual, I always like to start out by asking how you have been personally touched by dementia, if it's been in your own family or circle of friends, or if it's just work related. Stephen, I'm going to have you take that first, if you don't mind.
3: Well, very much work related. Uh, And inspired by wonderful people in Cleveland, Ohio, where I was teaching uh, for many years. But my grandmother passed away of what was surely Alzheimer's, although at the time they didn't really use the word much. It was senile dementia. And what I learned was really quite deep because I would go into the nursing home and I would do assisted oral feeding. This was actually before the era of peg feeding and feeding tubes and so forth. Uh, And what I found was that in that kind of ritualistic back and forth, uh, applesauce, bran and so forth, um, there was a connection there that was very subtle. And and occasionally she would surprise me and she would call me by name, uh, which I wasn't ready for, but I would, speak to her as if expecting an answer. Mm-hmm. And there was just a lot of back and forth. And so I, I knew she was there. And sometimes I could just see in the shining of her eyes that she enjoyed having little Stevie around because I was her favorite <laughs> grandchild, I must say. And she was a wonderful woman. So uh, even though she was deeply forgetful, and I don't use the word dimension much, mm-hmm. uh, she was deeply forgetful um uh she was still there and i never doubted uh that fact that underneath the silence or whatever it might be uh grandma post was still in town
1: well i love i love that you were so in tune to that and understood that so quickly too some people i think never never pick that up because they're so in the throes of the loss and been told that it's impossible and so they you know they don't look They don't look for it, and you know you don't find what you're not looking for a lot of times as well.
3: You have to be a noticer.
1: Exactly, exactly. That's
3: that's my my theory. You have to really be a noticer, and if you can notice, it can uplift your spirits, and you can do better things.
1: Exactly,
4: Jade. How about you? It very much started out for me as a personal experience with Alzheimer's disease, um, and grew into a profession. So um, Alzheimer's runs in my mom's family, both of her older sisters had it and died from it. And so when my mom was diagnosed, I wasn't actually surprised, but I was very frightened. I was very terrified, didn't quite know what to do. And um, I actually am a noticer, hadn't thought about it in that way before, but I entered into the experience noticing and paying attention to things that worked. And at the time when I first encountered my mom with, with Alzheimer's, because we lived in different parts of the country, I had been taking improvisational theater classes. And I realized that if I, if I uh, did improv, like I was doing a scene with someone in a class with my mom, it, she was much easier to, to be around and much easier to get to cooperate. So, I started integrating that into my into my uh, interactions with her, and then i a professor of mine gave me one of Stephen post's mm-hmm. early articles called alzheimer's and grace so he Stephen was one of the first authors that I read um, he his work resonated exactly with my religious tradition and my Own approach to the inherent worth and dignity of every person. And um, I I have to really thank him for his generosity over all these years of uh, being a wonderful mentor. And so, um, you know, my work is in the world, the area of spirituality and Alzheimer's disease, and also caregiver education. I do education programs now for caregivers about learning to communicate and connect. Using those um, improvisation techniques.
1: Wonderful. You know, I never thought of myself as a noticer either, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but definitely. And my mom taught me so many lessons because I noticed things. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what I speak on is, you know, kind of multi sensory skills in terms of communication and, and um, using um, emotional based training to get people to feel the need to change. And, and I love noticer versus, you know, a lot of times we use the word detective. Well, that just sounds like (laughs) much work, you know, and, you know, we really have to hunt it down Mm -hmm. because things are so subtle and they're so easy to see. And we all observe these things in, in the rest of our lives and why we kind of tend to turn the switch off when it comes to someone who is ill, and go ahead, Stephen, because you've got something to say. <laughs>
3: well, well, yeah, I, mean, well, well I, bar, I borrow the word noticer from Larry Dossy, who mm-hmm. writes about premonitions and synchronicity. And he says, you have to be open to these things in your experience. You have to notice them. Some people choose not to notice them. But I'll tell you, the word dementia doesn't help much. Mm-hmm. It's a purely medical term, de mentea, a decline from a former mental state, and it invites us not to notice. It invites negative metaphors, husk, shell, gone, absent, and so forth. Deeply forgetful is a much more inclusive concept. And you know, I have moments like every senior professor does out in the parking lot When I have to ask a medical student, do you have any idea where I parked my car today? Now, I know I'm really in trouble. If I have to ask a medical student, do you know if I drove to work today? (laughs) But, you know, we have to recognize um, that um, we need more inclusive language. And deeply forgetful is almost to be honest, getting to Jade here, it's almost a mystical concept. It's a very spiritual idea that somehow we all have those moments and there's more continuity than we think. And it's not them, the demented, versus us, the non-demented. You know, it kind of ebbs and flows a little bit. Obviously, you know, you get on and you have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or some other illness that causes dementia. Um, And that's, that's a more significant problem. But but we know what memory is. You know, we know, we know what it is to have a memory lapse of some major proportions and be embarrassed by it. So it's not alien to our everyday experience.
1: Very true. And I think sometimes we would like to be deeply forgetful and just escape maybe some of the things around us. And we call that a vacation, you know, or relaxing, you know, when it's a conscious choice too. So, I mean, it's, It is something that we all do at different times intentional or not, you know, it can happen. I do want to have, uh, I do want to have a conversation on the title of your book because, you know, that is the title of your book dignity for deeply forgetful people. And I'm always interested in the how's and the why's of the choice.
3: Well, you know, it's pretty much what I just said. I, I really believe in the concept of dignity and as a philosopher and ethicist and respite provider for family caregivers over the years, um, I think dignity really conveys the sense of worth or significance that just because someone doesn't have linear rationality intact and isn't quite able to make plans toward the future and move from point A to point B, they have many other wonderful forms of rationality. They can be incredibly creative, as everybody knows. Mm -hmm. They have symbolic rationality, so they can still know who they are, not so much what they're doing, but who they are. That um, bead, that rosary bead can stimulate a prayer. That article of clothing can stimulate someone to sort of get back in touch with who they are, because they wore that in the years past. So, so symbolic rationality is, is really important and, and consciousness itself means a lot. So I was in, I was in Bangalore uh, five years ago and uh, doing a talk on dignity for deeply forgetful people at the Indian Institute for Advanced Studies and in the back of the room came, surprisingly, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And he put his hand down on the table in the back of the room, pretty, pretty pronounced, and he said, You know, there's no reason to, to respect somebody less because their memory is compromised. It makes no sense. What really matters is their consciousness. They can still be conscious of the beauty. Of the world around them, uh, they can smell the apple pie. Uh, life is still rich for them, and that's what matters. And so, dignity is such a bigger concept than Western philosophers have come up with. You know, they've all said you you really count as a human person if you have this linear rationality. But you know, I got to tell you, a lot of times, especially when I get up in the morning, or you know, I I don't have much linear rationality. And when I'm asleep, I don't either.
1: <laughs> well, and you know, the other thing when you're when you're talking about that consciousness and, and the Dalai Lama, I just love him. But you know, I just think in terms of when I talk with people with dementia, they mention to me all the time that even though you know some things might be slipping with, with their memory or you know cognitive abilities their other senses have heightened. And we hear that with somebody who's blind or hard of hearing. And yet it's still really poo-pooed in this industry that they can take all of this in and still have great emotion and connection to what's going on.
3: And even be deeper
1: Mm -hmm.
3: because they get freed. Sometimes the goodness in their hearts is disinhibited. So in the book, I talk about Willem de Kooning, you know, the abstract expressionist, famous for pictures portraying anxiety and the intensity and the, and the depression of modern times. He becomes deeply forgetful. He's diagnosed at Cornell Weill uh, Hospital. And for 14 years, he's in a loft in Greenwich Village and he's got an assistant with him. Mm-hmm. And you know, he's still painting. He just rises up sporadically, even right into the 14th year, dips his paint in acrylic, goes up to the easel, and he paints. And, and his later stuff, there was a posthumous exhibit. I actually like it better than his early stuff because he got away from that sort of, mm-hmm. you know, battering and, and, and uh, animosity that was so characteristic of his earlier years. And he looks, his paintings are a little closer to Georgia O'Keeffe. You know, he's he's closer to the spirit of nature. He's noticing things, I think, in his environment that probably he was too busy or too nasty to notice before. So he was disinhibited. That's okay.
1: Yeah, that's, and again, that's what I hear people say too. Colors are brighter, sounds are more vivid, you know, all of that. And I love when they say to us, You know, stop trying to keep me busy and just sit down and relax with me. Take in the moment, you know, and, and Jade, I know you see this too, in terms of, of your work with people. Do you have comments that you'd like to add in terms of consciousness and ability and, and just art in general? I mean, the beauty that comes out when the ego has left the building and people don't really care what anyone's going to say anymore because they're just into what they're doing is so profound
4: um that that is absolutely absolutely the truth and i know that uh, i just want to make a comment about consciousness because the way steven talks about this in uh dignity for deeply forgetful people opened my eyes when he brought up the difference between you know consciousness and people who are in a vegetative state Mm -hmm. so people with with uh, uh alzheimer's dementia anyone with deeply forgetful symptoms, they're not in a vegetative state. They're Mm -hmm. conscious, they're conscious. They're not able to express their consciousness in the same way that maybe they were before, the same way that we do, but they are conscious. And um, I, I know I had all kinds of experiences like this with my mother, that she was able to do things that people didn't think that she could do just because they weren't taking the time to give her the opportunity mm-hmm. and you know one of the things one of the stories I like to tell is when I first I, I moved from Boston to Iowa where I am now to be with her because she was in a care center with Alzheimer's all by herself mm-hmm. and so I I came into the care center I'm a spiritual director so I'm trained to notice and I went into the care center looking for God
0: mm-hmm. and
4: what I found was phenomenal but Early on when I was there, I was walking with my mom and we went to the elevator and I said to her, you know, push the button down. I was trying to figure out what she could do and what she couldn't. And I stood there for quite a while and then I saw her little finger start to twitch. And then she very slowly raised up her arm and she pushed the button with the down arrow. So she knew she was very conscious. We got into the elevator and I thought I'd keep trying this and I said, okay, push the button one, finger comes up, pushes the button one, and down we go. So I was learning, just discovering all these things I just didn't think were possible um, that they were, that they were there, that she had all these abilities and it was up to me to draw them out. And oh, what a wonderful time we had doing that.
1: Well, and how fun for you to see, but how empowering for her to be asked to participate and, and, you know, to, uh, to be able to complete that task, you know, just to, just like you would normally. And, and I think we live in such a fast paced world. If somebody doesn't do it in a nanosecond, oh, get out of my way. Let me just do it, you know, and we, we barge in and then we just don't ask again because we're so impatient these days. And, and Stephen, and I can see you got something to say. <laughs> well,
3: well, no, it's just, I mean, just, but on the spiritual note, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. Eckhart Tolle and all these folks tell us that we should try to get a little bit free mm-hmm. from chronological pressures. You know, uh, I, I have to get up early in the morning and meditate and pray. And then I come into this building and I run a department and a center. And, you know, it is just Johnny on the go and, um, and I long for the present. I long for the moment. I long to be in the now. And when I'm around individuals at, at the VA um, nursing home, which is just down the street here, um, I can't help but be in the present. I, I'm in the pure present. I mean, it's not that they don't have connections with their past and they do. And that's an important thing to note and to, and to observe, but there's something about getting away from the chronological uh straitjacket mm-hmm. that really limits our ability to to see and to hear and to notice and to capture the value of life
1: you know i love that
4: term chronological straitjacket jade yeah i just i just want to add that that the power of now which is the Eckhart Tolle book that maybe Stephen is, is um, referring to. That was the experience I would have with my mom because people with dementia are very present in the moment. You know, the moment at hand is really all they've got going on. And so we can join them in that moment. So I would go to the nursing home. I would be there maybe three or four hours. And I was totally present in my mom's world, totally present in her experience with her and with all the people, who had dementia. And when I left there, I felt like I'd been on vacation. Mm -hmm. I wasn't worried about a thing. I was just very, very present in in what was happening during those hours. And that was another thing I noticed. Wow, what a surprise. So that's one of the things I really invite caregivers to, to pay attention to is you can join the people with dementia in their moment and be there completely. And it can be a marvelous experience in a lot yeah. of ways. Peace and
1: joy. I remember when I was younger, I used to work mm-hmm. with developmentally disabled and my mom would go, you have the patience of job with them, <laughs> but <laughs> with the rest of us, not so much, you know, cause then I was back to my, you know, boom, 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 get everything done. And when I was caring for my mom, it took me a little while because, you know, I was a real estate agent. So you're on call really 24 seven with yeah. step um, to put my pager down and, and turn my phone off. Cause I really thought the word world was going to explode if I just was quiet because I was so used to being so busy. So that took me a little bit of time, but then it was like, gosh, I got to the point where the safest and the calmest place to be was sitting next to her in silence mm-hmm. and just, and, and, and then, you know, you kind of want to slap yourself in face going, how much of this did I miss? For And for what, Mm -hmm. for what to feel that kind of safety and that kind of comfort. Same like when someone is um, shadowing somebody, you know, people are like, I just want to go to the bathroom and have some privacy. And I mean, they do it with a two-year-old and they do it with someone who is, who has dementia as well. And, you know, I try to get them to understand what a gift you are to them. And I I have a picture of um, Snoopy and Charlie Brown, and and who is the little one with the with the blanket? I can't even remember.
4: Lioness. Lioness has
1: this little blankie. I'm like, you are, you are their blankie. You give peace and joy and safety. That is an honor to be able to give that to anyone, and to (laughs) read. You know, when you look at that in a different light, then it's like gosh, how, how lucky am I to right. be part of this? You know, it really changes perceptions. And I think that's one of the biggest things that we struggle with is, is changing all of the fear-based mantras that have been taught and pushed out for, for so many years that there is love and joy, but it's up to us to find that. And so many times we're looking at the, the loss or we're looking at the fear of the future. And, you know, the only time we can identify joy or create it is in the moment. And we give that up. And yet when we ask people, what do they want? Well, of course, out of those three things, I want joy. Well, then do something about it, you know? And it gets back to that whole saying of you're always going to get what you got if you, you know, if you don't change the way you're doing things. And that's what I love about both of your philosophies in the book and the work that you put out is you're really... you're you're really trying in a very easy, compassionate way going, it doesn't have to be this difficult on any of us.
3: So I have a, there's a concept in the book that uh, I actually made up in 1994 in the medical school at Case Western, hypercognitive values. Mm -hmm. We live in a culture that, that that abides by hypercognitive values. And so when anyone doesn't quite measure up, and that includes productivity, then we devalue them. And if you're in Germany in the late 1920s and early 1930s, and there's a chapter on this, people who are deeply forgetful, um, they are labeled as, life unworthy of life, as useless eaters. And and you you go directly from that language game. Remember Martin Luther King, who spoke about the beloved community. He also said, the beginning of the beloved community is in language. Mm -hmm. You have to have the words to let deeply forgetful people enter into the beloved community. Dementia, don't do it. So what they did, they had a program 1939, you know, T4, Tiergastrasa 4, and they took 70,000 people out of institutions and asylums, half of them had cognitive developmental disabilities, half of them had dementias of various forms, and they let them freeze in the hypothermia experiments in the snow, in the ice, just in the cold, frigid air of night. They had no reason for this except they wanted to know when it would become futile to send rescue teams into the north atlantic to perhaps save a downed pilot but uh you know it was terrible then they would bring them back into the uh, asylums and they would thaw them out at different um, heat gradients and after about a year even the german people got sick of this because they realized you know these are not the typically discriminated against groups. They're not Jews or Polish Catholics or gay people or people of color. They're basically um, pure-blooded Aryans. Mm -hmm. And, And this is what we're doing. So they stopped T4, but the very same investigators went right to the death camps of Dachau and Auschwitz, and they continued the hypothermia experiments. And so the point I'm making is that You need the language. That's why, you know, so much of this book is really in the title. Mm -hmm. Dignity, not for people with dementia, but dignity for deeply forgetful people. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, how caregivers can meet the challenges of Alzheimer's disease. But those concepts of dignity and deep forgetfulness, those are the key teachings.
1: What do you, what do you say to someone who is, is living with a form of, of dementia that says, but I'm not deeply forgetful. You know, I, you know, I'm, I'm in the early stages. What do you say to someone who says that to you?
3: Well, smile, smile Hmm. and, and, and have a good conversation with them and ask them how they're feeling and what you can do together. And that's not a problem. I mean, there's a certain amount of, uh, uh, uh I guess uh denial to some degree that goes on but people may not even be insightful in the least to some so-called objective loss of memory mm-hmm. um, uh, they, they, in fact in fact they can get quite far along and and uh, still lack insight into the mm-hmm. fact that they're not driving well or whatever you know yep uh, that's
4: I, I, I'd like to just add that's one of the things um, Tom Kitwood, did in his studies that the very top of the list of signs of well-being with people with dementia is Mm dissent. And so there would be an example of that. You know, oh, I'm not deeply forgetful. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm doing just fine. And, you know, celebrate that. You know, that's dissent. We don't, we don't want to give them medication. We don't want to give them reality orientation. Just want to say, oh, okay, great. You know, I'm glad you're doing well today.
1: Well, and how nice to know there's a movement that if it progresses, I'll be cared for better. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, looking at it from from that angle too, I get, I get frustrated with all the terms. I mean, you know, it's white matter and it's neurodiverse. And it's like, it, it seems like all these words keep sidetracking the conversation and confusing the public. And I feel sometimes like we're a dog chasing our tail. With all this, because it's re-educating. Well, that's really the same thing as this. They just changed the term, you know. In in some ways, or they've they've changed um, they've changed the stage, you know, or they've inch- they've changed it for insurance reasons or whatever it might be. But bottom line is, what people really care about is how are they going to be cared for. That's
4: right. Well, and yes, and all of the language. Um, is terrifying people.
2: Mm
4: -hmm. Absolutely terrifying people. And so um, that's part of what I think needs to to change as well, because that's why I think a lot of times loved ones and friends veer away from people with dementia is because they're scared. They don't know what to do. They're afraid they're going to get it. They can't even really think about it, don't want to read a book. Um, It's just really scary. And if you look at it, as I think what Steven is talking about is a spectrum of forgetfulness. Mm -hmm. Like we're all on this spectrum somewhere along the the line.
1: Well, and that's, that brings up a great point too, in terms of being on the spectrum, because I I think of, you know, with my own mom and I didn't realize I did this, but I, I held her at this pillar state of who she was. And I wanted, I wanted her to be that until I Mm. saw this picture of my, my folks on my wedding day. And and then I thought, how unfair is this? You know, and I, then I start reminiscing about, you know, we called and we said we were getting married and we were all excited. We hung up the phone and my mom calls back like 20 minutes later, she's got the hall, the church and the menu all figured out. And mm-hmm. she was still having some issues at that time, but it was very early on, but she was organized and she loved to celebrate life. So as I'm digging through the, you know, the big plastic bin full of photos and I see this picture. I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking, how unfair is that? That I, I still want her back. I'm still, even though I I say I've accepted it, I still yearn for that in my heart, you know? And, and then I look at the picture and go, everything's changed. My dad's dead. My mom's got dementia and I'm divorced. And yet I think I can freeze frame her in time. And that's fear. It's like, you know, look in the mirror, Lori, you don't look the same. You don't act the same. Nobody does. We, we are all, you know, changing in this life. And yet we, I think when we get scared, we want to hold on even tighter to what was comfortable for us.
3: One thing to remember, that's a really great point. Um, the use of language in relationship to fear, Mm -hmm is a real problem. So one wants to recognize that Dr. Alois Alzheimer himself did not believe that he had discovered a disease in 1907 with Augusta D. He thought he had encountered a woman in her 50s who had some memory problems. And he felt that that was simply a part of an aging brain. Mm -hmm. that's just what brains do when they start to get older and the idea that somehow, you know, other parts of our bodies can age, but not our brain, you know, is kind of silly. And, and now with, you know, with the studies of, for example, women in their late nineties, 60% of them have what you might call dementia, probable Alzheimer's in some cases, but, you know, we have to recognize that this comes with the territory of being human, mm-hmm. uh, and I truly, I truly uh, think that we 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 need to reconstruct our view of again. It's this them versus us mentality where we're thinking it's a medical model somehow. Much as I work in medical schools and and love doctors and love medical students, and every day I'm surrounded by them. Thank heavens, uh, but still, um, you know, we 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 have to just recognize uh, you know, there, there are cultures where there is no such word as dementia. Mm-hmm. Again, it's a negative term, Dementia, They call it squirreliness, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, that's just grandma or that's just grandpa. And it, it, I mean, I mean, in, in Chinese culture, particularly among Chinese Americans, there's a epilogue in the, in the book by a Chinese American about his, his, uh, mother and father who both have dementia. And he says, you know, um, uh, they're still glorious to me and I don't separate them from our family. They're, they're still part of the table. They're still part of our dynamic. We just, and the African-American community also is much more inclusive Mm -hmm. uh, of people who are, I would say, deeply forgetful. Uh, So we need to really recognize um, that um, the language uh, somehow separates people from the beloved community
2: Mm -hmm.
3: mlk all the way
1: Mm. it is interesting because i think you know as americans we we've been told that we have it right you know for so many years and we're the leader of the pack and it's like oh my gosh we have so much to learn and it's amazing the different approaches out there and the willingness to to give this information freely and yet, um, I remember calling um, Mark Wortman when he was the director of Alzheimer's Disease International. And I said, I think I got to move. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, why? And I'm like, they don't get it here. I mean, just mm-hmm. nobody gets it here at <laughs> all. And, and he burst out laughing. And I said, Mark, I am serious. I, I am banging my head up against the wall about talking about dementia friendly and changing the culture and the whole nine yards. And this was back. Probably 2010, because I stepped into this about 2009. And he goes, You really don't know why, do you? And I'm like, I don't have a clue. And he said, Lori, he said, Over here, we approach things from the greater good. And people left here to start America to be proprietary. And, you know, like I was telling them, you know, when I got this information on memory cafes and dementia-friendly communities, nobody wanted a nickel, nobody wanted a dime. People wanted to actually change the verbiage and take their S's out and put our Z's in and, and, and do it for free. And I, I remember sitting back going, wow, how cool is that? Yes. We need that over here. <clears throat> and, and even with, you know, the work I do now with a uh, dementia map, is really interesting because people will say, well, I just need my local resources. And I'm like, no, you need global resources. Granted, if somebody needs a, a physical place or a clinic or, you know, home health, they need something within the community. I said, but there's so much out there to help. And, and they're like, well, no, we're fine. And I'm like, you know, we wouldn't have dementia-friendly communities or memory cafes if it wasn't for other countries. And then they, their mouths drop open. It's so important to have these conversations and share these global concepts with people because they're life-changing and and there's so much support for one another to get them off the ground. And a lot of times I think here, and correct me if I'm wrong, but th- this frustrates me, maybe it doesn't you guys, so please speak up if, if not. But we're so used to everything being In this nice little neat little box, and this everyone has to meet the same criteria. Yet every community and every family is different. And you know, we put this structure in there and we tell them this is the only way it can be. And we shut down creativity in terms of really expanding and meeting the needs of the person and the family and the community. And you know, that creativity also reduced a lot of costs. And people are willing to participate um, and volunteer their time when they feel they're part. And so, this conversation about dignity is so deep in my heart. It's just so important. And I, and I know, Stephen, this has really been your life's work and, and
4: Jade, yours as well. I'd just oh. like to add something about language here um, because I think some of the language that we use in, in the United States about disease um, is war language, is battle language, you know, you've got to defeat this and we're going to conquer that. And part of the problem with the dementia diseases is that they can't be conquered. They can't be, you know, they can't be beaten. And so we end up in this hopeless place and we end up in this place where, you know, we're throwing all kinds of money at uh, pharmaceutical um, uh, research, whereas what we need to be doing is more of exactly what you were talking about, Lori, that's coming to us from other cultures. That's the basis of Stephen's book. That's the basis of my work. So instead of focusing on cure, we're all focusing on healing, which is that spiritual concept, which is being with the people with dementia, You know, loving them, being kind. Stephen really stresses kindness. Um it, patience. I, I'm convinced that this disease is among us so that we can learn to be more compassionate people. Um but I, I feel like that that we're gonna defeat this language is really part of our downfall.
1: Yeah. We'll have a cure in five years.
4: Yeah. We'll have a cure in five years. <laughs> we promise. We'll five We better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah.
3: Beautifully yeah. stated, Jade. Thanks. And the yeah. other just and also in response to Lori's nice line of discussion. You know, um, we, we suffer uh, an illusion in our American culture. I love America, uh, but we emphasize independence and invulnerability. And, you know, when you really look just descriptively at life, when that baby comes into the world, it's completely vulnerable. It's completely dependent, you know, and, and, and by the way, it it has no memory, maybe a little emotional memory there. And, and, um, and when we fall ill, um, we will become suddenly vulnerable and dependent in ways that we never anticipated. And as we grow old and older and older, um, we just naturally move into this zone. And so somehow or another, we need as a culture not to fight, and I'll use Jay's language there, not to fight against vulnerability, not to fight against dependence, but to recognize that that's the fundamental, ultimate reality of the human condition, period. And and I think that's what's interesting, like in Canada, I don't want to compare Canada much, but in some other parts of the world, but at least they have the Good Samaritan programs in every province. I've been all through Canada, and spoken at those uh, events. And, you know, they provide free um, long term care for everybody. And you don't have to spend down into poverty. I mean, we give folks, uh, you know, in the book, I, I, I say we give them scraps and leftovers. <laughs> And, and, you know, even when we know that respite, just a few hours a week of respite will allow caregivers to thrive much more so than they would otherwise, our leaders say we can't do that because it's something that's not affordable. We have a healthcare system that will rescue anybody from death. We will do anything. I mean, look at the intensive care units I hang out in every day. Unbelievable, you know. Uh, we'll rescue anybody from death, even when it's really completely ridiculous, but we don't do the kind of basic care. And it's because we don't understand vulnerability and dependence.
1: You know, I think one of the things too, when you talk about vulnerability, you know, to me that, that goes to authenticity. And the older I get, the more beautiful that is. And the more I appreciate just you know, the good, the bad and the ugly. And, you know, I've chosen, you know, I just turned 63, but I push away people in my life who aren't authentic, who aren't vulnerable because they're not really sharing who they are with me anymore. And sometimes I found it's just too much work for me to be present in that state and pretend. And so I really am looking for those authentic situations and people, you know, who are deeply forgetful, people who are going through trauma, cry, weep, laugh. You know, I, it, those are all real emotions that are okay to express. You're scared. You know, we have to stop. You had talked earlier about the um, hypercognitive, you know, issues and stuff that we have. But you know, we've gotten even a stage worse now where we cancel people out. We don't like what they say. We don't like what we do. So you know, it's just you're out. And and I'm. I'm kind of saying that that's what I did with some friends, <laughs> you know, in some ways i I just said I have to choose my space, but I'm not doing it because I don't love them. It's just i have I have other work that I feel like I'm here to do and um but I think it's really important for people to appreciate that that vulnerability. You had also mentioned about you know a baby coming into the world and and you know they might have a little bit of emotional memory and stuff. But yet what I tell people is, think about how conversations change once you know there's a baby in the womb. All the conversations change. And, you know, all of a sudden we are inclusive of that baby in the womb. And yet when someone is, is sick, we, we like push them away and, and try to forget them. I'll never forget analyzing even my own situation with my folks, my dad had brain cancer, my mom um, had Alzheimer's disease. And I had two packs of friends Uh, and I didn't even know they were different. I had lots of different circles, but they kind of fell into two different packs. And one asked how they were doing because they really, really wanted to know. And the other pack asked because they wanted to give me permission to never go visit them again because they were Mm -hmm. so uncomfortable with what to do or how to help or what to say that it was like, it will just be easier,
4: Lori, if we don't have to deal with this. You know, I want to, I just want to say something about what you said about the baby, Mm -hmm. you know, baby, a baby comes into the world and people change their language and they, you know, they include the baby. But the other thing that people do when babies come into the world is they willingly change their lives. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges with Alzheimer's caregivers, when people become dependent later in life, there's a lot of resistance to changing their lives in the way that they need to be changed in order to provide care and companionship for someone who's deeply forgetful. And um, I see that a lot with couples that the, the, the caregiver will be furious that, you know, we've just retired and we were planning on RVing all around the country and now this, you know, and there's that resistance, that anger Um, the denial that people need to get beyond. And studies have shown that acceptance, like a radical acceptance of reality, a radical acceptance of what is, is the best coping technique that will relieve caregiver stress. So it's, you know, I can happily change my life when a baby comes, but I can't happily change it now. Mm -hmm. And if we can encourage people, you know, to change as change, needs to happen their lives and the lives of the the deeply forgetful people are going to improve exponentially yep let
1: go let god yep and move forward Mm -hmm. that's for sure Stephen, was there anything that you wanted to add
3: no i think that was a very beautiful statement
1: it really was one of the things i i do want to talk about end stages and the ability of you know dying with dignity I know that that's a really tough, tough topic for many. I, I encourage people to go to Compassionate Care because they have a, a wonderful addition that people can use uh, for their healthcare directives on that. And people go, well, I don't, I don't believe in that. And I'm like, what this does is it makes you think. You don't have to just have dementia, be forgetful, having cognitive problems, you could have a stroke, you could be in a car accident, and these issues are going to come up and it makes you think about them in multiple levels. So if this happens, this is what I want. If this and this happen together, maybe I want to change that. And if this, this and this happen, well, then I want to look at it. I want you to look at my life differently. And, you know, that's my, my preference. I'm always a girl that I always like my options. I don't know if I'll use them, but I like my options. So, um, Stephen, I'd like to hear your thoughts and then Jade's.
3: Well, you know, I, as a medical ethicist by, by profession, and I've been running all around the U.S. for the better part of 30 years doing workshops in these areas, uh, I would say, first off, that all of our research indicates that 95-plus percent of older adults interviewed and asks this simple question, were you to be struggling with dementia? Mm -hmm. Would you want any medical treatment whatsoever that would extend your life? 95 plus percent say no. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions to that. I can appreciate those exceptions. But the bottom line is that they're saying they don't even want to be treated for um, diabetes, if they have uh, a chronic cardiac problems, which can become very elaborate now with the support, the technology and so forth, they, they don't want to be treated for that. If they have an underlying uh, cancer, uh, they would uh, want to be kept comfortable if they needed some palliative uh, treatment but they don't want anything that is purposefully life extending so they want to die without a tube or a needle or anything in any orifice natural or unnatural if i can say that and when i was at case western one of my one of my friends there was a a gi surgeon in rainbow children's hospital in 19 19- um, 79, he invented the feeding peg, you know, because he thought that young children who had problems swallowing needed something that wasn't going down their throat, and that was appropriate. But in the year 2000, Dr. Gatterer wrote a beautiful essay in the Journal of Percutaneous Endoscopic Gastrostomy, Peg Tubes, and he said, the thing that he was most saddened by is that in 1985, feeding pigs were introduced into nursing homes. Mm-hmm. And not only were they introduced into nursing homes, they, they they meant that nursing homes would fire a lot of the staff who were actually pretty well trained. I was trained in this as a kid. Pretty well trained in assisted oral feeding and knew how to make it work. So you know, And if, if you use a feeding pig, you don't get even an extended life, if that's your goal, because you'll have the, the pneumonias, you'll have uh, the, the people pulling their tubes out because they don't have any insight into what that is and they're restrained. And then they're sitting in excrement and they get infections. And so the best thing to do is die naturally. And And, and we just have to do that. But there's so much inconsistency regionally state by state nursing home by nursing home we and, and there are financial aspects too but in, i tell you in canada nobody in canada has ever been treated with a feeding pig when they began to lose their capacity to swallow it's never happened they don't do it
1: well it's interesting and i think you know with the survey too and and i could be wrong but i think so many people still think end stages. When they when they hear dementia, Alzheimer's, they automatically go to end stages. And I think of my mom who lived with the disease for 30 years, she had a lot of quality of life in that time. And, And I'm not and I'm not trying to change anybody's mind one way or the other. But I think people have to be more educated on probabilities and understanding that everybody goes through this process a little bit different and we have to dig deeper in terms of what is quality of life for us and i for the life of me i can't understand why that's such a scary conversation because i you know i want people to honor my last wishes you know i want them to know and they're not going to know if i don't tell them and i you know and i know what it's like to have to make those decisions for somebody who hasn't told you? And the the guilt and the suffering and the double guessing and the all of those types of things, and then everyone else's opinions. It's like this should just this should be taught in school, as far as I'm concerned. In high school, um, I think this is a really really important topic for people to understand mm-hmm. the you know the healthcare directives, the the powers of attorney. The I just think it's smart living and. You know, it it isn't something to be afraid of, in in my personal opinion. Jade, how about you?
4: Well, one of the things that I witnessed um, being in a nursing home every day for four years, uh, I witnessed a lot of people with um, Alzheimer's, with dementia diagnoses of various kinds, I witnessed them dying. And I can't remember any of them being on feeding tubes. Uh, It could have been possible. But what I noticed was that it, it was a very natural process is that they leaned into the process of dementia, not having that cognitive awareness that, oh, I'm dying, but just, you know, experiencing whatever was happening in their bodies and, um, you know, it's it's challenging for a family member to be companion with that and to, you know, to not want to do something to fix, but um, I had the benefit of reading one of Stephen's earlier books, so I knew that we weren't going to do any, you know, any feeding tube and we weren't going to do any um, uh, great uh, treatments. Um, But the most we did was an antibiotic for a urinary tract infection, because we wanted to keep her comfortable. So that was was my goal to keep her comfortable, free of pain, uh, happy, uh, companioned, and to just allow the dying process to happen. And it was really a rather beautiful, you know, peaceful experience.
3: So I'm pro Iowa, Jade is in Iowa. I'm in Iowa. And, and I love Iowa. And I have to tell you that I, went, I, was, I gave a talk at the Governor's Task Force on Alzheimer's Disease in Iowa. And it had to have been 20 years ago. I was living in Cleveland at the time. And the whole thing was devoted to assisted oral feeding. And they had whole programs to educate, to re-educate people how to do that and how to do it effectively, because it's not just something you don't need a little training for and, and I, think, I, I think you're right. I think Iowa tends to be uh, quite progressive compared to some other parts of the country. So I like that. I like what you just said. But can I say one thing, um, Lori? you know, that um, is th- there's, there's a chapter in the book. There's a chapter called, Is Grandma Still There?, which is mm-hmm. a question every grandkid asks. And, and I, of course I say, of course she is. <laughs> what else are you going to say? You and can. who are we to claim that she's not? But there's also a chapter on preemptive assisted suicide. And I tell the story of when I was a, a student at the University of Chicago, I had two mentors. Both of them were psychiatrists. One of them had a wonderful family. He became demented, probable Alzheimer's, maybe mixed. And his family embraced him, took care of him, let him know that he would be cared for. And he did live for another 10 years or so and um, did pretty well, actually. But there was another psychiatrist who had no family at all. He was what now, uh, I don't like the language they're they're referring to as I live alone. And uh, he took 40 secanols in a plastic bag over his head and he died. And right now, I mean, I don't espouse that because I'm so interested in how we can connect with these individuals at very deep and meaningful levels. But um, you know, in the book, I talk about a street clown in San Francisco who you know he'd been acting in front of the libraries and so forth for years. And now he has a diagnosis of progressive dementia and he determines he has no family members, no loved ones, no one he can really rely on or entrust with his future to kind of chaperone him through the medical technological morass. And uh, so he actually took a plane to Switzerland to Dignitas, and that's the last anybody heard of him. So he availed himself of, uh, of assisted suicide there. And it's not something I'm advocating, but for some people is something they really, really want. On the other hand, judge not lest ye be judged. I will not judge anybody about that, because there are some people who just don't want to go through that experience. Not that they know much about it, but I have to honor them.
1: Yeah, we did a show several, oh gosh, I mean, several, several years ago about that. And we had people living with dementia. We had care partners. Um, we had physicians. It was funny. I couldn't, I couldn't get any a religious um, person to join that conversation at all, which I thought was really interesting, and you know, minds were changed after that conversation because people were all—they were all different, and they all—they all had thought it through. It wasn't something that they took lightly. Um, you know, so I hear people to this day say, "Well, I have my stash of pills. I hope I remember where they are when I need them." You know, because they're thinking about that. We had one gal who moved with her family in order to be able to do an assisted um, suicide. She planned three months ahead. She told all of her family and friends so people could come and visit. And it was the most beautiful thing to witness. And I just witnessed it through Facebook mm. with her postings and stuff. Oh. But, you know, she she just felt like she was too much of a burden to her family and that they couldn't change to meet her needs. And they mm. still wanted her old self. and. But it was, it was so beautiful. Everybody was on the same page with it. And I, I'm like you, I, I'm, I don't want to judge that. I don't want to say one way is right or wrong. I, I think everybody has different circumstances. Um, but I think it's a conversation of, again, getting educated on the process and, and what does this even look like? And understanding, again, it's different. It, it, it's different for everyone. And there's still bullying that goes on with many people living with dementia, with people saying, well, my husband didn't act like that, or my, my mom wasn't like that. You're faking it, you know, for these people who are living with dementia and strong advocates out there. And they're like, you have no idea what this takes me, you know, to do to get up on stage. I'm down for the count for two or three days because I pull my energy together because I'm passionate about this. And. And people just really don't understand the process of, of the mind and the body and, and the soul and and their particular situation in life. So um, thank you for, for bringing up this topic. I think, again, it's, a, it's an important one um, to be had. And, and again, we could talk all day on it. People can reach out to Dr. Stephen Post uh, by going to a website called unlimitedloveinstitute.org.
3: And it's Stephen G. Post, Stephen with a PH. Oh,
1: you're right. And Jade has a
3: great website.
1: Yes. Uh, healingmoments.org or jadeangelica.com. And people can also email you at, uh, it looks like jadeangelica at gmail.com. Thank you both for being with us today. Always fun. I could talk to you guys for a week straight and um, I don't think we'd run out of things to talk about. So so thank you for your work, your energy and your love in terms of changing the world to be a better place.
4: Appreciate it. Thank
3: Thank you you so much. much.
1: And to our listeners, I hope you like, click and share this episode. Alzheimer Speaks is here to raise all voices. So maybe just maybe you can be our next guest, you know, visit us on our new website. It looks all different, but go to Alzheimer and go to our resource page and you'll find more information about not only the show and how you can be a guest, but uh, maybe you're living with dementia and want to participate as a panelist on our dementia chats or our dementia and the arts program, lots of free fun things there to keep you engaged and lift you up and know that life is worth living. Thanks everyone. Yeah. Till next time.
0: Bye-bye. Bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy.